how could we possibly find life beyond Earth if we don't even know how it started here? We don't actually know where the first life lived. There's theories that it could have been on land, underwater, in a vent at a high temperature. We really don't know what, what exists beyond the last ancestor. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. here with Dr. Lori Barge, and she is a research scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She's also a co-lead on JPL's Origins and Habitability Laboratory. Lori is interested in the emergence of life on early Earth and understanding how to look for life out in the solar system and beyond. Welcome, Lori, to Gravity Assist. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, how did you ever get interested in the study of how life may have originated on Earth? Actually, it was a, I had a more general interest in science when I was little. I just wanted to study space. But when I went to study that in college, I found that I was most interested in, in the things that address these existential questions, like why are we here and is there life elsewhere? And so I ended up actually doing my thesis about biosignatures. So it was kind of a reverse. It was, a, why are these weird patterns forming in, in geological and chemical systems that kind of look like life but are not life? And then after studying that, I thought, well, you know, can you go reverse? Can you say, well, if, if a, a non-biological system can make such interesting patterns and complexity, then is this a way that you could lead from a, from a geological system into a biological system at some point. And so that's why I switched over to studying the origin of life, which then also led me into studying Earth's oceans. So I hear your lab is really fascinating. What does it look like when you walk in? Well, it looks, it looks really different from what you would maybe expect because we're simulating something that's at the bottom of the sea. But in order to do that, it looks like, like a mad science project. It, it's all in a, what's called a fume hood because we have to keep the toxic gases away from the researchers. So those get sucked up into the fume hood. And then we have each little ocean vial separate on a stand being clamped up above the ground. And then we have tubes of atmosphere gas coming into each one because we have to be early Earth, so we can't have any oxygen in there. So we have tubes of nitrogen and argon and other non-oxygen gases feeding into each chimney. The chimney itself, it looks like what's called a chemical garden. There's actually this whole other field of research called chemical garden where you can grow these plant-like structures from a metal salt. And they look kind of like plants, but they're completely non-biological. Our hydrothermal chimney is also an example of a chemical garden because it is growing from two solutions that meet each other and it grows vertically. So they look kind of like these like mineral plumes, small chimneys, and they grow about couple centimeters high, but of course, in the real environment, they can grow to be tens of meters tall. It's just about, you know, what scale do you have as far as for the fluid to inject into the seawater? So the little chimney is actually connected with all these tubes, all these different things, and even instruments to analyze it as it's growing. So it, it, looks, it looks pretty cool. Your research also focuses on hydrothermal vents. What are hydrothermal vents and where are they? And, and how do we know how life emerges from around them? 
Well, hydrothermal vents are basically cracks in the seafloor where you have seawater that interacts with the seafloor rock, and then it goes down into cracks in the rock, and then it becomes chemically altered, so it's basically a different fluid. Then that hydrothermal fluid comes back up out of the seafloor, and when you have these two fluids interacting, you have the hydrothermal and the seawater, they're very different, and that's why you get a lot of chemical precipitation of minerals, but you also get gradients forming. So when you're talking about gradients in the whole environment, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about really just any big difference between the two solutions. You have the seawater and the vent fluid. And there's a couple main differences that lead to important factors for, say, chemistry or life. One is the redox gradient. So this means that the hydrothermal fluid is emitting chemicals that are rich in electrons, things like hydrogen or methane. And so life can use these as fuel. And then the ocean, at least today, has oxygen in it, so that's a great oxidant. And on early Earth, it would have had things like carbon dioxide, which is also an oxidant. And so that's the redox gradient. And then you have chemical gradients. So these are just when you have a difference in the amount of a certain ion or, or, or molecule from the inside to the outside of the vent. So things like maybe sodium or magnesium or organic material. And then there's also the pH gradient. So this is the gradient of how acidic it is. So the ocean on the early Earth would have been mildly acidic, and then the hydrothermal fluids, some of them are acidic, some of them are alkaline. And so each gradient can vary depending on what type of vent you're in. These hydrothermal vents actually is a relatively recent discovery. You know, uh, I think the first hydrothermal vent was uh, found when I was in graduate school. So, I mean, they, uh, this is just fantastic, brand new research. But in each of these hydrothermal vents, don't we find life? Yeah, these vents do support life. They support microbial life, but they can also support multicellular life. And it's, it's a little biosphere that's supported by this chemical energy. It's really interesting because the vent is just giving off chemicals from inside the earth that are energy sources for life. And life can build an entire biosphere based on this. And it's separate from biospheres fueled by, say, sunlight. So it's it, the discovery of vents really taught us that you can have metabolisms of all kinds and they can be chemically powered by the planet. And then as we learn more and more about microbiology over the subsequent years, we've learned that life can actually use a whole variety of different energy sources. So whatever there may be available in an environment, there's probably some life that wants it. Well, you know, uh, since uh, those hydrothermal vents were found, we're now finding hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, where do we typically look in the ocean floor? Where is the biggest probability of finding a hydrothermal vent? Well, I would think that, I think generally it's where you know that there's volcanic activity. And so things like the, the plate boundaries, mid-ocean ridges, things like that, you could expect that there's going to be some chemical alteration. But they can be found in other places too. And so it can be really hard to predict exactly where you should find a vent. So Earth's seafloor is a very, very big place, and it's not completely explored, and so there's still a lot to look for. So essentially, uh, these vents don't receive sunlight. They're not powered by the energy of the sun. They're powered by the energy of the planet. But our ocean isn't the only body that has water like that. Where else do we think are hydrothermal vents in the solar system? Well, there's been discoveries of oceans on other worlds, and we, we would like to find out if any of those might also have vents. And to have a hydrothermal vent, you need to have a liquid water ocean, but you also need it to be interacting with the rocky seafloor because it needs to have the seawater going into those rocks and altering and then coming back up. 
And so basically the questions for astrobiologists are, are there, is there a rocky seafloor that is in contact with that ocean? And do you expect the ocean to be circulating and undergoing that same chemical process? And then if it comes back up, what type of gradients do you have? Now, the study of these hydrothermal vents that you're doing so much in this particular area, is, is that because the basic idea is that life must have, uh, must have really occurred on Earth in the ocean first and therefore these hydrothermal vents? You know, no one really knows the answer to that because we can only, with the origin of life, you can look at it from two directions. You can look at it from top down, which is where you look at all life on Earth and you say, what does it have in common? What was the last common ancestor like? And you can get some information and then you can go bottom up and say, based on what we know of early Earth geologically, what was possible? And then where does that take you? And ideally you want those two to meet up somewhere reasonable. And so we don't actually know where the first life lived. There's theories that it could have been on land, underwater, in a vent at a high temperature, and no one really knows the answer to that, honestly. So for origin of life chemistry, we have to test all kinds of different conditions and try to narrow it down. And then ideally, one of those at least will be similar to what we know about the earliest life. So when you're in the laboratory and you're cre recreating a vent, what does that look like? Is that just a slit in the ground? We make a little bottle that is the ocean. We make an ocean solution. And actually, the nice thing about lab is you don't have to be limited to the ocean that Earth has today. You can make early Earth's ocean. You could make an early Mars guess at an ocean. So we make a little ocean. And then at, at the base of that, we inject with a syringe a little hydrothermal fluid. And if you slowly inject that, then those two fluids react and you can form mineral precipitates. And so if you inject slowly and carefully, you can grow a little chimney in the lab, just like you see in, in vents in the field. We make choices about how fast do we want the fluid to flow? How fast do we want the chimney to grow? And so we, we control the situation more by having just one injection point at the bottom. So it really is a syringe needle that comes up the bottom and then we control that injection. But if you make it different speeds or different forces, you can get all kinds of different effects in the chimney that you make. Well, what are some of the processes then that are occurring besides the precipitation? Is, uh, as you say, there's a reduction and, and, and what does that mean chemically? Well, we have, let's say, if we inject organics into the hydrothermal fluid, so we pretend they're coming up from below from some water rock chemistry, then those organics can react with the iron minerals in the chimneys, or even not just in a chimney, but around the chimney you have sediments, and it's, it's like this big chemical reactor where a fluid is flowing through a porous pile of mineral with so much surface area and so much pore space. So you can really get a lot of reactions. So one thing that we look at is reduction, using that iron to reduce organics into other molecules, and then also trying to form those, those building blocks of life like amino acids. Ah, wow. So you actually can form amino acids in these environments? Are there some specific conditions or temperature ranges that you're finding out are really critical to be able to do that? We are finding that for amino acids specifically, it is good to have more minerals than less minerals. So it's nice to have, you know, a nice pile of sediments or a really big chimney rather than something small. And we find that it works a little bit better when, when you're at a more alkaline pH and when the temperature is medium high, like maybe 50 to 70 degrees, not too high. And so... But, you know, a lot of times in lab, you find the, quote, best condition for a reaction, but that's not actually the condition that Earth had. And so you have to say, well, what's the best condition, but also what's the most realistic one? Well, you know, Mars 
in its distant past, you know, when Earth was a blue planet, Mars was a blue planet around four billion years ago, it actually had a huge ocean. Two thirds of the Northern hemisphere was, was underwater, but that water's gone. So can we, or should we roam around that ancient ocean floor of Mars looking for old hydrothermal vents? Would that be a good idea? I think that'd be a great idea. <laughs> I would like to see that. I would like to see some roving around looking for evidence of old vents, but also if you can get underground at all and look and see what's there. On Earth, we do this, you know, we look for the oldest rocks and say, what do they say about our ancient ocean? So being able to do things like that for Mars and other planets would be amazing. Well, if you could invent a spacecraft to find, you know, the type of life that we're talking about, which would be extremophiles living in extreme areas, like high pressure vents and high temperature ocean worlds, what would it be like and where would you go? Well, I think there's so many places you could go. And I would personally want to see things like how we study Earth's ocean. So we have, you know, robots that go underwater and look at vents. And it's, you know, even on Earth, where it's the easiest possible scenario for a planet, because we're here, it's still really hard to explore the ocean. And it's, there's a lot of work still to be done about understanding our seafloor. So I would love it if we could ever get to the seafloor of another world that might have vents, even though I know that would take, you know, many, perhaps many missions or many years to actually characterize that environment. But if we could ever go to a vent with a robot and actually look at it and see, does it have life or could it support life or what does it even look like? I think that would be fascinating. You know, on Gravity Assist, we also get questions from our listeners. And one of them, uh, I think you're going to be able to answer, uh, and that is, do you expect evolutionary rules to be universal or would extraterrestrial life just follow its own rules? I would say probably in general, some things are the same, like the fact that certain chemical elements are going to be better energy sources for life, or maybe the way that organic chemistry might have to work for mutation. But I think that also evolution is largely directed by the environment and the planet. And so on another world or with another origin, you would also have to ask, how is that planetary environment and the evolution of the planet affecting its life as well? Another listener wanted to know about the similarity of genetic material across all of Earth's life form. They appear to be the basis for a single origin of life. But could that similarity of genetic material also indicate that life can only form in one manner? Yeah, I think we don't know for sure how many origins of life there could have been. All we know is that all life on Earth has one common ancestor. But, you know, you can't, we don't know what happened before that. And so it is possible you had other origins that either fizzled out or something. But also it's interesting because if you did have multiple origins and if it was the case that life could only happen one way, then you might expect a tree of life that had more than one ancestor. And so that's something that we can look for, you know, when we see life on other planets as well. Well, you know, I found out that one of the things that you like to do uh, through a National Science Foundation program is to work with summer students. What are some of the things that you do? Yeah, it's actually a year-round program. It's called, well, it was called Bridge to the Geosciences. And so we, we design modules for community college students to learn about different careers in geoscience or in STEM. And so we would go to different institutes and show them, you know, what are the types of jobs you could have as a geology major or as a science major beyond just, say, being a professor at universities. There's all kinds of really interesting things that one can do with that. So we try to give them kind of a more broad view of what this looks like while they're still in school. 
Well, Laura, you know, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that happened that got them so excited that they became the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. So, Lori, what was your gravity assist? Well, you know, honestly, I would say it was it was the missions that went on during my childhood and also when I was in college. And so for me, I think the first time I thought I would, I really decided I was going to work for NASA was when the Voyager mission passed Neptune. And I forgot what year this was, but I was in elementary school. And so I remember seeing that on the news and thinking, wow, this is great. I should work for NASA. And at that time, I had no idea what astrobiology was or, you know, that I would end up liking geology or chemistry or any of this. But it was kind of what put it on my radar. And then when I was in grad school, the Mars rover's Spirit and Opportunity landed. And so that was really fun, too. And Cassini got to Saturn at that same time. So it was really fun to kind of like be studying my research as these missions were studying these planets. And so I think the missions were very inspiring. And I think they have been for a lot of people in my cohort. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and talking about a real passionate topic you have, the origin of life here on Earth. Because if we don't understand it, how it happened here, how can we possibly find it elsewhere? Thanks so much, Lori. Thank you. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>